All right, we are still in our First Peter series. Why don't you guys grab your, your Bibles, uh, grab your devices, whatever you have. Meet me in First Peter. Going through the book of First Peter. And when I say we're going through the book of First Peter, for those that are first-time visitors or, um, or you haven't been here enough, one of the things you'll find out is that we feel most comfortable in the scriptures when we're letting the word of God dictate our time and dictate our conversation. Um, that, that's just the best way to do it. I just I could preach my own opinion, uh, but it just wouldn't be helpful for your spiritual growth. Your spiritual growth needs the word of God uh, as an application to life's problems. And so we will be going through all of first Peter, all five chapters, 105 verses are in first Peter. And we'll literally be going through every one of them. Uh, if this is your first time here or your second time. This is a good time to join in because we just started the book a couple of weeks ago, and we're only in verse number three. So if you could pick me up there, verse number three is where we're going to go. Three to five is, is going to be our focus this morning. Verse three says this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, exclamation point, note that. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to and circle this phrase to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept for you in heaven. Verse five, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. I want to preach from the topic entitled praise God for salvation. Praise God for salvation. Let us look to the Lord. Lord, we are back at it again and we are. Um, requesting that your spirit would move in this place. Your spirit would move upon me as I proclaim your word, but your spirit would move upon all of us to receive and hear your word. If your Holy Spirit doesn't move on our hearts, this will just be uh, some intellectual exercise. But when you move, it's transformational. And when you move, you help us to grow. And Father, help us today as we draw near to your word. Pray that the word uh, would give us the ability to grow and that we would apply it to our lives. And maybe walk out of here and be doers of the word and that hearers only, lest we deceive ourselves. Father, it is in your son's name that we come before, uh, we come before you, but it is his name that we want to proclaim today, even from this epistle from 1 Peter. Father, meet us in our time together today and may you be glorified. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Praise God for salvation. In the movie, The Wizard of Oz, um, Dorothy spends the first part of that movie trying to get far away from home. And then once she finally gets into Oz, she spends the rest of the movie trying to get back home, trying to get back to Kansas. Uh, she, she was longing for home because the Wicked Witch of the West was after her, flying monkeys were after her, and the stress and the trials of being in Oz made her long to be home. Little did she know that she had on her feet the ability to get home by just clicking her ruby red slippers together and saying what? There's no place like home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. In a greater, in a deeper, in a higher way, that is what Peter is pushing these persecuted exiles, which is who he's writing to. That is what Peter is trying to get them to see. He's trying to get them to look past their trials, past their persecution, and get them to look all the way to their home, which is in heaven. But the only difference between our salvation and the Wizard of Oz is that we don't have to click our ruby red heels together. We get to trust in the ruby red blood of Jesus Christ. And that is what 
takes us all the way home. And in our passage this morning, this passage comes on the heels of Peter's introduction. Remember last, well, two weeks ago, we were in 1 Peter and we were in uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and verses 2, which really was the introduction, Paul, Peter writing who he was. And Peter spent the first two verses introducing himself. He spent the first two verses really defining who his apostleship was. And then he spent it clarifying who the audience was to the elect exiles. And we, uh, we, we define that the elect exiles are people that are, have trusted in Jesus but are not in heaven yet. And so in this, in this passage this morning, what we will see is that Peter deems it necessary, after he introduces himself, Peter deems it necessary not to write automatically about their trials. You're going to see later on in this chapter that they are going through various trials. But he doesn't address it after he introduces himself. If I'm Peter and I'm writing this letter, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to jump right to their issue, which is their trials. But Peter does not do that. He doesn't even deem that it's necessary that he writes to them how to live as exiles. That's coming later on in the chapter as well. He spends our verses this morning doing something that most of us wouldn't do if we were writing this letter. He spends the first part of this letter after his introduction praising God. Let us consider the passage together. Verse number three, lifting up the first sentence, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that Paul is writing this letter to a scattered group of exiled believers. And as he's writing this letter, he doesn't begin by giving them any instructions, but he begins by praising God. The scripture says, blessed be. Now, you might be asking, how can I bless God? That almost seems blasphemous. Like, yes, the Lord blesses us, and he blesses us by what he does for us, but we bless him back by speaking well of him. So when the scripture says, blessed, it is not saying you can do anything for him. It is saying that you should be saying something about him. You should be proclaiming him. You should be praising him. In fact, the New Testament was written in a language called Greek. And the word that he uses here, blessed, the, the Greek word is eulogetos. And what that literally means is we, we get our English word eulogy from the word blessed here. And so when you think of a eulogy, a eulogy is for a person to eulogize the deceased means that they have to speak well of them. You'd be hard-pressed to come to a funeral, like, what if you came to a funeral? And I was presiding over this funeral, and the guy that was, was deceased, I was talking bad about him, saying he owed me money, and he was trifling. Like, the family would be upset. The family would be calling for my ministerial license. They, they would never want me to enter into that church again. A eulogy means that you are speaking well of, and that is where we get this word blessed from. And so when it says blessing God, it is talking about Praising God, it is talking about speaking well of God. But please note that this letter is written to a persecuted people. And so what Peter is saying is, look past your persecution, look past your trials, look past your hardships, and praise God. How many, how many of us can do that on a consistent basis in the midst of hardship? And maybe you've walked in here with hardship. Maybe you walked in here and things are not going well. Maybe you have financial hardships. You got relationship hardships. Whatever the hardship is, Peter is modeling for us what we should do. Praise God. Speak well of God. Thomas Whitfield, a 
gospel writer, he wrote this song. He says, hallelujah, anyhow, never let your troubles get you down. When trouble comes your way, all you have to do is stand up right and say, hallelujah, anyhow. Listen to me, Epiphany Church, circumstances should not sway your affections and your praise for God. No matter what you're going through, you should be able to conjure up some type of praise. And it's important for us to note that Peter is suggesting that to us today. Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so whatever you're coming in here with, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How many of you, rhetorical question, please don't answer it. How many of you find it hard to praise God in the midst of hardship? What we do is we complain. What we do is we get depressed. But, but Peter doesn't do that. He doesn't even encourage the people he's writing to to do that. Peter says, no, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Nope, the text does not just say, blessed be God. Like, that would be well enough. But look at the title he uses here. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that God the Father and Jesus Christ are both mentioned in the same sentence. What Peter is affirming here is he, he's affirming the Trinity, but he's focusing on two persons within the Trinity, the Father and the Son. And the relationship between the Father and the Son is a consistent relationship. If you look throughout Scripture, you'll see over and over again that the Father and the Son are in perfect unity, going all the way back to creation. Let us make man in our image. So what you see over and over again is a consistent relationship, uninterrupted fellowship. And the only time that the relationship between God the Father and Jesus Christ was interrupted was when Jesus went to the cross to take your sin. How do I know it was interrupted? Because what does he say when he gets on the cross? He says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which literally means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For a temporary period, because of your sin, Jesus was uninterrupted. Jesus was interrupted in his fellowship with God the Father, even though they've had not just centuries, but eternity of spending time together. Peter tells us today, blessed be God the Father and the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This relationship is consistent. I just want to back that up with some scripture. If you're writing scriptures, write these down. John 16, 28. This is what it says. Jesus says, I came from the Father, and I have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world to go back to the Father. John chapter 6, verse 38. Jesus says this, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The question you should be asking is, who sent him? 1 John 4, 14 answers that question. For we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. John chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Over and over again. The only reason I read those scriptures is for you to see that over and over and over again, you see uninterrupted fellowship between God the Father and God the Son. Peter mentions both of them in this passage. And when you see them, not just mentioned, but when you see the consistent affirmations throughout all of the scriptures, what you will note is that God the Father is leading and you see Jesus Christ in full submission. 
Like God doesn't say, go save the world. And Jesus say, yeah, I think I got a better plan than that. Trinity, like, let's get together, Holy Spirit, and try to, I don't think God understands this one. Like, they are in perfect concert and perfect unity over and over again. Blessed be our God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Note another word here. If you're writing in your Bible, circle this word. I literally circled it in mind and drew a line out and wrote crazy when I wrote, when I read this. Note this word, our. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that important? Because only the person that has trusted in the work of Christ can make this personal claim that Jesus is ours. Peter tells these executed, I mean, uh, exiled, persecuted people that Jesus Christ is yours. And the fact that sinful people can make this type of a, a claim is a miracle. Like the fact that you are able to say, Jesus is mine, not only that, but you're able to say, I'm his. The fact that you can say that is proof that the cross worked. That what Jesus accomplished on the cross absolutely worked. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord. And if you have a hard time subscribing adequate praise to God, you need to look past no further than the word our. The word our. See, what we do is we just read the scriptures and like, oh, yeah, that's, that's cool. Every word matters. Every single sentence matters. Every period matters. Every exclamation point matters. The word hour should birth praise in you because only the believer, only the one that has trusted in the work of Christ is able to say, blessed be our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is ours. Do not run past that. He's not just, so the word hour shouldn't just birth praise in you. That, that really is, that sums up the gospel. That should birth the highest praise in you. So it's no reason why we should gather in here on Sunday mornings and be quiet. Blessed be our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He did not have to give himself to us. He could have created earth, wound it up like some cosmic wind-up clock, and, kept, and went back to heaven and been disconnected from us. But yet he has tied himself to his own creation. Blessed be our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the rest of... The scriptures between the B part of verse three all the way to verse number five, what you're going to see is Peter explaining why we should praise God. Yes, we should praise him because he's ours, but the rest of the text that we read this morning, really it can be summed up in the, in the title of this sermon. The title of this sermon is Praise God for Salvation. We should be able to praise, speak well of, and give God our highest praise because of salvation. Let us walk through what that means. Verse number three says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. Please note this. He has caused us to be born again. The central statement of this verse is born again. Like, what does it mean to be born again? One of the guys at the church here, Eddie, sent me a video earlier this week about, um, it was this this a heretical priest that was talking about this word born again and saying the church just uses born again to keep people as being children because they don't want them to grow up and think. But understand something about born again. You are not able to spend eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ unless you are born again. 
It is a very powerful statement. And surely when Peter put his pen to the paper to write First Peter, he was thinking about Jesus' interactions with Nicodemus. I don't know if you guys know the story with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a religious scholar in this time in the first century. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and begins to dialogue with Jesus. And although Nicodemus may not have even understood why he came to Jesus, Jesus understood why Nicodemus came to him. And what does Jesus say to Nicodemus when he comes to him? He says, truly, I say to you, unless you are born of water and the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. But that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Jesus talks to Nicodemus about getting to heaven and says, you must be born again. And Peter now picks up the pen and says the same thing that his Lord said. You must be born again. And so born again is a very, very important concept. Second Corinthians 5.17 says this. It, put it, it puts it this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, and the old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. And yes, this is something like you being born again is so mysterious. Like when you think about being born again, like what does that actually mean? But what Jesus puts when he says it to Nicodemus, he puts the weight on saying the first time you were born was not good enough. Remember, he said to Nicodemus, that which is born of flesh is flesh. And so if you were everybody in this room, one thing we have in common is that we were born once. Can we agree? Like all of us had to be born once. You can feel down and see if you have a navel. If you have a navel, you were born once. And when when Peter says to be born again, what he's suggesting is the first time you were born will not get you into heaven. It's a false sense of security. What gets you into heaven is not flesh being born of flesh. Why? Because the first time we were born, we were born in sin. We were born in iniquity. Doesn't David say that when he sinned? I was born in sin, and behold, in iniquity did my mother conceive me. That does not mean that, that his mother and father were in the back you know, of a, of a pickup truck at the creep spot. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that I was born in sin nature, Human nature puts me as a sinner. Hear me. When you are born, you are born and it's over before it starts for you. You are born already under the wrath of God. And so Jesus goes to Nicodemus. Peter comes to these exile persecuted people and say, I know you're born once, but you must be born again. And hear me and let me, let me pastor you for a second. You cannot claim to be born again and walk away and do the exact same thing you did before you gave your life to Jesus. Like you cannot be born again and still say, man, I'm addicted to weed. You cannot say I'm born again, but I can't stop sleeping around. You cannot say I'm born again, but I, I can't get out of this relationship that is not pure. Jesus says you must be born again. And when you are born again, when you meet Jesus, he changes everything about your life, your taste buds, the things that you desire, your worldview. Everything is rock when you meet Jesus Christ. And so no one walks away and says, man, I've trusted Jesus, but nothing's changed. No, you must be born again. You must be born again. And Peter saying born again, he's applying, implying that first time he was born was not good enough. Note who's causing this new birth. Note who causes it. Look at verse number three. 
Scriptures preach themselves, I'm telling you. Verse number three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. Look at this. He has caused us to be born again. You did not cause yourself to be born again. Your good works do not cause you to be born again. What causes you to be born again is because God swoops down from heaven and says, she's mine. It's because God swoops down and says, he is mine. We all must be born again, but the agent that causes us to be born again is God. You didn't cause your first birth. What makes you think you caused your second? I was born at 643 on May 1st, 1980, born in Fairfax, Virginia, in Fairfax County Hospital. And, you know, I can, I can tell you details about my birth, but I didn't have anything to do with it. I didn't pick LaBarbera and Stanley to be my parents. I would have picked them, but I didn't pick LaBarbera and Stanley to be my parents. My mom is here, so I got to slip that one right on in there. I don't, you know, I'm not too old to get a beating. I'm just saying. I, I, wasn't, I didn't pick my parents. I didn't in the womb say, uh, maybe I should be born in Fairfax, Virginia. I had no part of that. I didn't pick my complexion. I didn't pick my height. I didn't pick whether I was a male or a female. And you didn't either. But yet we read stuff like this and say, born again. Okay, well, I can cause myself to be born again. You didn't cause the first time to be born. But yet you think you have interactions with you. Like you think is God the Father, Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit in you. You didn't cause your first birth. You don't cause your second birth. Note what he says here. Peter says he has caused us to be born again. Note something that we ran past here. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I, I ran right past this, but it's important. According to his great mercy. So you, again, you weren't, you're not saved or born again because of your works. You are born again because of God's mercy. Because God decided to lavish his love on you. Titus chapter 3 verse 5 and 6 says, He saved us not because of works done by us, but because of righteousness, or righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, according to his mercy is why you are saved. You're not saved because you desired to be saved. You couldn't desire it. Remember, I said you were born in sin. How do sinful people desire to be saved? You can't. You need somebody. And if salvation was left in the hands of sinful people, you and I would not be saved. So I am grateful that he caused us to be born again. Oh, by the way, because of his mercy, which is why he decided to save you. And don't get it twisted. I, I know every week you come in here and I say you're a sinner and I'm surprised when I do that. I'm like, man, they're not coming back next week, but you all come back to hear me say you're a sinner. Why is that important? Because great sins need great mercy. Note that he doesn't just say that God is merciful. He says because of his great mercy and your sins are great. And so you need great mercy. Yes, your sins are great. And you know why your sins are great? Your sins aren't great just because you're a sinner. Yes, and just because you sin. Yes, that is an aspect of it. But do you realize that God is so holy that even the good that you do, according to Isaiah, is a filthy rag before the Lord? That means God is so holy that when I bring sin to him, he's offended. But he's so holy when I bring righteousness to him, he's still offended. We need great mercy in order to be saved. This is the gospel message of Jesus Christ, that you do not save yourself. You are saved because of the great 
mercy of God. Make no mistake about it. Your sins are great. And if you think, well, I'm not as bad as the person I'm sitting next to, in our hearts, if we was to take everything in our hearts and put it up on these screens, all of us in here would run out. Reality is we need great mercy. This is what Paul says about in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. These are, this is my, my favorite verse. It says, but God, this is what it says about mercy, being rich in mercy. There's an abundance of mercy that God has because of his great love in which he loved us. Even when we were dead and our trespasses and our sins, here it is again. He made us alive together with Christ. Even Paul affirms what Peter's saying. You don't make yourself alive. You don't make yourself be born again. No, it is a work of God by the mercy of God. Not just mercy, great mercy. Paul says rich in mercy. Over and over again, we see that we need mercy. But there's something else in verse number three. I promise I'm going to get out of verse three soon. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And so you're not, this is not some wishful desires. We're not hoping like, man, I don't know if I'm going to get in or not. No, there is a living hope that the believer has. This is not some false sense of security. Warren Warsby writes on this verse. He says, hope is not a sedative. It is a shot of adrenaline a blood transfusion, like an anchor, a hope. Our hope in Christ stabilizes us in the storm. But unlike the anchor, our hope moves us forward but does not hold us back. This is like a living hope isn't wishful thinking. Like we're not going, man, I don't know if I'm going to make it in. No, listen, we have a living hope because of the work of Jesus Christ. I am not standing before God On the day that, on judgment day, when Christ comes back, I'm not standing before God shaking and worried if I'm going to make it in. You know why I have confidence that I'm going to make it in? Because I can just look at Jesus and say, he already secured it. Like, if you punish me for sin that Jesus already died for, that's double jeopardy. Our own laws don't even allow that. Yet, we think that we're going to be punished again. Listen, there's nothing in me that's worried. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 says, remember here, here's an unbeliever. Remember that at one time, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise. Here it is, having no hope and without God. We are not like an unbeliever that has no hope. No, we don't just have hope. Scriptures calls it a living hope. I've shared with you guys multiple times my conversion story. I had a false sense of security. I had a False sense of hope. I thought I was saved. You asked me if I was saved, I would have told you I was born and raised in church and thought that my religiosity saved me. And many of you may be in that boat right now. You may be going to church two or three times a week and thinking is that is what saves you. But that church doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. A friend walks in the parking lot with me. I'm walking out of church. He hits me and says, man, do you, you know Jesus? I'm like, yeah, I know Jesus. Man, do you know that the, the cross and the cross alone is what saves you? And I'm like, ah, that sounds good, but my works. It's the cross plus my works. And, and I literally said to him, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. I said the gospel was the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. And yet I go home and the Lord uses that very message to save my soul. Hear me. I was preaching and didn't know Jesus. I was preaching and didn't know the gospel message of Jesus Christ. I was preaching with a false sense of hope. Peter says here to this persecuted exile, no, 
you've trusted Jesus, you have a living hope. This is such an important thing. The believer is the one that can say, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. This is the second song I I quoted. I told you I'm still feeling a little bit of karaoke in me tonight or this morning. What you see here is Peter pushing these persecuted people to praise God for their very salvation. It's a living hope is what Peter calls it. Let's finish up verse. Let's finish up verse number three. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is so important because the death of Christ, which we keep talking about, secures our salvation. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ is proof that the, that the work that Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross actually worked. The, the tomb is empty. Hear me, in a few weeks, I'm going to Israel, and I promise you, when I get to Israel, when I get to the tomb, I do not expect to see Jesus' body there. Our hope is birthed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul is writing this from, I mean, Peter is writing this from firsthand. Like, yes, he's writing this to this exiled group of believers, But Peter is writing this, having witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ from firsthand. Remember when they were at the Last Supper and just before Judas betrayed Jesus and Jesus says, one of the boys here is going to, he's going to disown me. He's going to betray me. And remember, Peter jumps up confidently and says, like, Lord, it's not me. I'm not going to do that. And he was right. He didn't do it. But what does he do? After Judas betrays him, he trails along and watches the crucifixion of Christ from afar. And then the the scripture tells us that before morning even hit, before the rooster crowed three times, that Peter denies Jesus Christ. But what's important for us to note is that when Jesus rose in Mark chapter 16, the scripture says that an angel comes down to the ladies that were at the tomb and the angel says something important. He says, go tell the disciples and Peter. He does not say any other apostle. He says, go tell the angel, go tell the disciples and tell Peter that Jesus is going to meet y'all in Galilee. And so what Peter is writing to these exiles is not some, he said, she said, he's not writing something that he heard about. No, he's writing something that he was a firsthand witness to, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we can be secure in our hope that Jesus Christ has risen. He's not, Jesus Christ wasn't only resurrected. He is the resurrection. Like, please note that, that he is the very resurrection. Remember when Lazarus died? Lazarus died, and the two sisters come out and said, Lord, if you just had been here, our brother wouldn't have died. Jesus said, your brother will rise again. And what did they say? We know he'll rise again, but he'll rise in the resurrection. Jesus responds and says, I am the resurrection. Like, yeah, he's going to rise because I am the one who brings him back to life. So the scripture tells us this morning, listen, you're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen, we have a living hope that we can take all the way to the bank that Jesus Christ died, but he also rose Again, let's keep going. Finally, in verse number four, to an inheritance. I told you to note that phrase. That's very important. To an inheritance. Listen what the inheritance is. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. And it's unfading. Kept for you in heaven. Peter here does not describe 
this inheritance, what, or he doesn't define what the inheritance is. He just describes the inheritance. He says the inheritance that awaits the believer, Scripture tells us that it's undefiled, it's imperishable, and it is unfading. This is so important for us. The, 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 the one that is able to get this inheritance is the one that shares DNA with that's in the family of God. A non-believer cannot hold, lay hold to this claim. Remember when Prince died, or the artist formerly known as Prince. Remember when he died, there was, some, there was a guy in prison that was claiming to be Prince's son. Remember, he said, you know, my mother and, and Prince had this, uh, had this relationship in the 70s, and I'm the fruit of that relationship. And the authority said, okay, if you're really the fruit of that relationship, let's take a DNA test. And then they did a little cheek swab and see if he had the same DNA as Prince. And the results came back that he did not have the DNA of Prince, and he did not receive the inheritance that Prince had. What, what am I trying to say? I'm not trying to compare Prince and, and God, but what I am saying is that if you're not in the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ, you can't claim hold to this type of inheritance. This inheritance is only for the person that has trusted in Jesus. And here's the beautiful part about the inheritance. I, if I was to, God forbid, if I was to drop dead today, my sons would get the little bit of inheritance that I have. The great thing about God is, number one, yes, he owns a cattle on a thousand hills. So his inheritance is a lot greater than anything we could pass down. But the great thing about God and his inheritance is his inheritance is you get him and he's enough. So when it says that your inheritance is, is undefiled and it's imperishable, what it's saying is that your inheritance is God. Numbers chapter 18 Verse number 20 says this. This is what it talks about your inheritance. It says, you shall not have no inheritance in the land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion. Then God says, I am your inheritance. God is our inheritance and we need nothing else. Listen, that rose gold iPhone 7 you have right now is going to be in a junk drawer in two years. That that. That Mercedes-Benz S-Class that you want is going to be outdated. I, when I was younger, I, I begged my mother, man. I cried and begged my mother to buy me John Madden uh, 90. Y'all remember Madden? Oh, y'all may not remember that. Y'all young. Y'all way too young for me. Madden 90, I begged my mother, buy me Madden 90. And when she bought it for me, I had all my friends would come over. we play the game. I mean, hours and hours and hours we would play this game, Madden 90. And I was addicted to the game, hear me, until Madden 91 came out. Madden 91 came out and Madden 90 went in the drawer and collected dust. If not, I gave it away to somebody else. That is when your inheritance is of this earth. It perishes. It's defiled. It doesn't stand the test of time. It's outdated. Take a picture of yourself right now and look at it 10 years from now. You're going to be like, why was I wearing that? And you think you look good this morning. You're going to be like, I can't believe I had. Why was my hair like that? Because it's defiled and it's fading. But the inheritance that we have being God himself, according to Numbers 18, the inheritance being God himself shows us that it is undefiled and that it is not fading. We get God and God is enough. And when it says imperishable and undefiled and unfading, I just want to quickly define these and I'm going to move on. Imperishable meaning that it's death proof. 
When it says undefiled, it, it means it's sin-proof. It's God. When it says it's unfading, that means it's time-proof. You're like, I want you to rejoice about the inheritance that you will have when you get to heaven. Peter writes this to troubled Christians, and of course, these troubled Christians would have been rejoicing about this. And despite some of the self-help books that you may read or that you may see, your best life is not now. I don't, I don't care what you read. Your best life is not now. The believer's best life is to come when we get the inheritance that is from God. Let's continue working here. First uh, Corinthians 15, 19 says, if, Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If all your hope is staked in the things of this world, you are most to be pitied is what the scripture said. Our inheritance is in heaven. Our our best life is in heaven, and it is an eternal, eternal life. Now, the important thing that I really want to point out in the text is where is your inheritance? I keep saying it's in heaven. Well, that's affirmed through the scripture. Look at verse number four. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Listen, kept for you in heaven. Your inheritance is secure because of the location that it is in. Your inheritance is in heaven. And so your inheritance is secure. Nothing else in this world is secure. I bought a plane ticket one time on Delta. And Delta overbooked the flight. And I didn't know it. I thought I was secure. I got there. I had my little boarding pass on my phone. Got there ready to board. And they're like, ah, we actually gave that seat away. And they offered money. I took the money. They offered money to get on another flight. Get on another flight. Basically, what I'm trying to show you is that everything in this life, nothing is secure, even when you think it is. Your job is not secure. You can be laid off tomorrow. Listen, that relationship is not secure unless it's marriage. I'm not saying, oh, pastor said I can get out of this one. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what you should have came to karaoke last night. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying there, there's nothing in life that is secure but your inheritance is kept for you in heaven. It's kept for you. Like you don't keep your inheritance. It's already kept for you in heaven. Let's keep going here. Now, verse number four defined for us where our inheritance is and really defined for us the security of our inheritance. Verse number five is going to define for us that not only is the inheritance secure, but the inheritors are secure. You are secure. Let me read it. Verse number five. Let me read four into five. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept for you in heaven, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Verse four told us that your inheritance is secure. Verse five tells us that you are secure. Because the question on hand, when I read this, if we just stop at four, it's easy for us to say, yes, my inheritance is secure, but what if I mess it up while I'm on earth and I never make it to heaven? But the scripture just tells us in verse number five that you yourself are secure as well. And so just as secure as your inheritance is, your salvation in Jesus Christ is secure. You are eternally secure. Like, that is a doctrinal term that I don't think we give much weight. I know, like, some of us in here may be like, well, can, can I, am I really saved all the way until Jesus comes back? Can I lose this salvation? Short answer is you can not. Absolutely not. But the 
more biblical answer is in John chapter 10, verse 28 to 30. I give them life. This is what Jesus says. And I will never, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given me them is greater than all. And no one will be able to snatch them out of my father's hand. You cannot fall away from salvation. Once Jesus has said, I'm, I'm putting my great mercy on this person. He doesn't back off and say, ah, I made a mistake. Yes, the inheritance is secure. But when you've really, I'm not talking, I came to church, I got up at six o'clock and prayed. When you are genuinely, genuinely have trusted in Jesus Christ, he will keep you all the way into the day of redemption. Is that not good news that you can't lose your own salvation? And you know why you can't lose it? Because you didn't save yourself. If you saved yourself, then you could lose it. But when you don't save yourself, there is none can snatch them out of my hand. And a, a good commentator noted that you can't crawl out of his hand either. You can't get out of it. You can't wiggle your way out of his hand. His secure, he's secure in his grip on you. And so the scripture told us that we are, the inheritance isn't just secure, but you're secure. And you know why you're secure? Look back at verse number five. Who by God's power are being guarded? Look who is on guard, guarding your salvation. Look who is on post, guarding your salvation. It's God himself. You know, one of, the, one of the most secure places in all of the world is Fort Knox. I mean, it has thousands of guards and it is, it is tightly secure. You cannot just walk into Fort Knox. But on, but on our detail, the only person that is guarding you is God himself. And that's enough. We need no others. We don't need so we don't need secret service. We don't need cops. We don't need all we need is God himself to be on guard. And this word guarded simply means to watch over. Like what comfort is that to this persecuted exiled people knowing that in the midst of your trials that God the father is watching over you. He is guarding you. And this is very important for us. Verse five. By whom is being guarded, by whom, by whom God's power are being guarded through faith. That's, that's so important. Through, through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. And so this, this salvation that we talk about, this security that we talk about is only birthed and activated through faith in Jesus Christ. This inheritance that we talk about is only birthed through faith, not just faith in Jesus, but faith in the death of Jesus Christ. You know, in an inheritance, you can't get the inheritance if the person's still alive. Like, I don't, I don't know if you know that. Right? It's like a will. You can't get the will unless the, person, unless the person dies. What activates our inheritance through faith is there has to be a death. What greater death is there in the scripture than the death of God's only son, to die for your sins. And so what, in, what activates the inheritance for you is that God, the Father, sent Jesus Christ to die to activate this inheritance. And this is important. My question to you today as I close my time, as we conclude this moment of, 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 of engaging the word, the important question I have for you is can you lay hold to this claim? Can you, have you walked in this place today secure in the fact that you have trusted in Jesus? Secure in the fact that you have an inheritance that awaits you? Every head bowed and every eye closed.
You know, when it comes to salvation, we, we play this game, man. If you haven't trusted Jesus, we play this game like, I'm going to trust him one day. Maybe I'll trust him tomorrow. Maybe next week I'll give my life to him. There's a few more things I need to do before I give my life to the Lord. Or maybe you're that person that says, I have to clean my own self up. Remember in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, it says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love, while we were dead in our sins is what the scripture says. He didn't wait for you to get it together. And so if you're in this room and you are waiting for yourself to get it together, hear me, you'll never get it together. If you're waiting for me to stop with this sinful relationship, if you're waiting for me to stop with this addiction, you'll never get it together. But through faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, this inheritance can be activated. This inheritance is far greater than anything you could get on this earth. This decision to trust in Jesus is the most important decision you ever made. Yeah, you may have made a decision to go to college, what college I'm going to go to, what, what I'm going to do after college, what career I'm going to get in. Should I marry this person? These are important decisions. But there is no decision like trusting in the work of Christ. There is an inheritance that waits you. Stop trying to white knuckle it. Stop trying to fix your own self. When my kids make a mess, when it's a really bad mess, I don't ask them to clean it. I, as their father, come down and clean it for them. When it comes to the gospel message of Jesus Christ, Jesus does not expect you to clean up your own mess. He sends Jesus on down to fix it for you.